Welcome to Outside the House, where we discuss local and national political issues and ideas with a lens of social and climate justice, and connect with the radical people who are taking action across the country because they believe we can do better. I'd like to acknowledge that the land we live on, also known as Turtle Island, in addition to the traditional names locally, is sacred land that has been inhabited by Indigenous and First Nations people for more than 15,000 years. I'm thankful for this opportunity to share space, honour, and celebrate the lives and traditions of those whose land was stolen from them. I'm your host, Katie Robertson, and welcome to this episode of Outside the House. Welcome to another episode of Outside the House. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, I welcome Jordan Westfall from the Canadian Association for Safe Supply. I'm very excited about this. Um, It's a good opportunity for all of us to have a conversation about what safe supply is and what it means for all Canadians and um, those who access it and those who live in the communities where it's available. So welcome, Jordan. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And so uh, I think I introduced you that you're the CEO of the Canadian Association for Safe Supply. Yep. Okay, awesome. Can you talk a little bit about what um, CAS does? So we're basically a registered nonprofit um, nationally based registered nonprofit based in Vancouver. And we are, you know, basically, basically we do a lot of public education. We do a lot of advocacy and we do some activism uh, related to, we're focused on the government mostly to ensure that people who are at risk of overdose have access to legal alternatives to the illicit drug market. Because we know right now in Canada, the drug market is, the illicit drug market is very unpredictable with fentanyl. And, you know, we come from the perspective that uh, the most important thing we can do right now is to ensure people have alternatives to the illicit drugs that, you know, have killed so many people. Can, can you elaborate a little bit more on on what that looks like? So for me, when I think about safe supply, actually, the first thing that came to my mind was safe injection sites. So is this different? Is it the same? Is it all part of one thing, one umbrella? I, I guess you could probably put both safe supply and supervised consumption under the same umbrella of harm reduction. Um, but I think safe supply, I think safe supply goes pr- probably it goes a bit further than let's say supervised consumption sites because um, we know uh, a supervised consumption site in Canada currently there is not any well there's very few that actually provide the substance that the person uses Um, so it's supervised consumption they have to obtain uh, substance illicitly and that can come with a lot of danger and a lot potential harm for that person Um, so what safe supply does is it kind of takes it further than supervised consumption by providing someone with the substance itself. And uh, we know when, when they have, when someone has legally regulated drugs, uh, they're, they're less likely, they're going to know what's in their drugs and they're less likely to overdose. And they're also less likely to experience a lot of other harms related to criminalization of people who use drugs um, and, you know, street life. So, I'm just thinking about the current uh, supply chain, as it were, outside of um, like a a safe supply 
supplier, I guess. Is that is that what they would be? Safe supplier? I guess um, so. <laughs> Safe um, subscriber? <laughs> As of right, right now, I guess. Is it, yeah. So so can you kind of paint a brief picture of, of you know, along that pipeline of consumption, where that harm comes from if they don't have access to this type of program? Right. So um, when when you when you're obtaining drugs illicitly, uh, we don't know what we don't know what's in them. Right. We there's no there's no regulation to it. Um, so, you know, what we found over the last several years is that a lot of people are, are buying a drug they think might be, let's say, heroin. Uh, and it turns out that that drug has um, fentanyl or carfentanyl in it in, instead or with it. So. Uh, people go expecting to use a drug that has a certain potency and strength, and because they don't know what is in that substance, they end up doing a drug that's a hundred times stronger. And you know the outcome of that is is potentially death. Um, so so yeah, basically like that the harm comes from the the prohibition of the drugs that we've had for almost a century now or over a century, um, and. For, for, the la- for the lack of offering an alternative to that prohibition system uh, through safe supply, through prescriptions, through, you know, a variety of different things. But uh, mostly it's because it's because of the illicit nature of the drug market that leads to so much unpredictable, uh, unpredictability, excuse me, and harm. Would um, decriminalization be... A solution to this is it something that has to happen in tandem or is that even something that is considered some type of solution around um decreasing the unsafe supply oh it, it has to uh, decriminalization definitely has to happen like that is i think i don't think it's going to solve everything i think um you know there, there's the example of portugal and europe who decriminalized drugs a little while ago um and I think people should know the Canadian context is a little bit different than Portugal was. Um, we, we within Canada have so much, so much high potency illicit fentanyl um, that, you know, decriminalization doesn't address that directly. Um, it doesn't dre- uh, address providing a legal alternative to the drugs, but it does make life safer for people. Um, you know, when people go to jail, for, for, for drug possession, they come out oftentimes a lot worse off. And that's not good for society, and it's certainly not good for the person. And, you know, having a, a, a regime of decriminalization can start to address that and confront it and make sure that, um, you know, people don't have to be hiding from the police all the time or worried about the police all the time. And, it, and it's, you know, it's a human right as well. Um, you know, no one should be criminalized for their for their own personal drug use yeah and i and i i would think that decriminalization because you'd have obviously less incarceration and less um contact with the police that that those resources could also be reallocated to things like prevention or intervention with somebody absolutely and there's there are so much resources that go into go to the police for uh, drug-related issues, and you know, if a large portion of that was uh, put into, you know, like some of the stuff that we're addressing, like safe supply, uh, treatment, all of that, prevention, um, 
we not only would it be you know remarkably so much better for the people for anybody at risk of overdose it's just better for communities um you know there's more there's more safety for everybody there's less drug related violence you, you know it's it's something i i think people should consider uh, even if people you know a lot of folks are like oh that doesn't affect me it's it, when we get that a lot but it does affect everybody just in different ways um, and it will affect your community or any community. Can you tell me, are there any um, places in Canada where this safe supply program is administered or operating? Yeah, so in Canada, we have um, we have a handful of programs now. Most of them are in British Columbia. In, in British Columbia, uh, as a result of COVID, uh, the government released a guideline, a prescriber guideline, that doctors can use to prescribe substances, uh, tablets of known potency to people. Um, that's considered one example, although it's been disputed somewhat, of a safe supply program. Um, there's also the example of the IO programs in, uh, I mean, the, the the first one was in Crosstown Clinic in Vancouver, but there there's one in Ottawa, and there's a couple in Alberta, in, in Edmonton, in Calgary. And these are more on the clinical side, but uh, they do provide, you know, legal drugs, prescription drugs of known potency that people have to use in a supervised setting. Okay, so it's not something where they get a script, you fill this prescription, you go home and and take these drugs, like you have to do it. Yeah, that's a, that's one one issue with that type of program is it's kind of it's, it's restrictive for people, and those restrictions come from from like this societal perception of drug use and, and the supposed danger of these substances, which is completely ridiculous at this point because uh, someone can go use fentanyl on the street and, and die immediately. But we keep the safest drugs that we have under the strictest uh, controls and, and the programs under the strictest uh, controls. And a, as a result, you know, that not as many people can access those programs and more people use illicit drugs uh, in the risks with that. So if we made it more accessible, then not only, you know, generally speaking, but then there's also this sort of microcosm of harm reduction where it's easier to get to versus like if they don't have another choice, they're still going to go back to their uh, quote unquote, like illicit drug dealer. Yeah, right. And yeah, illicit is, uh, you know, with quotes around that term because, you know, what, what society deems illicit changes all the time and it's not nearly right. But like, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty much exactly. Yeah, it, it's more like like the safe supply in order to have like effective safe supply programs. I think it has to be able to compete with the illicit market because people can usually access drugs on the illicit market way easier than they can in a, than in a healthcare setting. And, and we know what happens there and because the drug supply is so unpredictable right now. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have two questions, follow-up questions from, from that. The first being, um, do people who need to access this safe supply program, do they pay for the drugs? Uh, no, I think in pretty much all jurisdictions right now, uh, the, the, uh, the drugs are either covered through, through most all covered through provincial pharmacare. Uh, and in the cases of like prescription heroin, uh, the drug is is covered only in very, very strict criteria in British Columbia. So as an alternative, because of the availability issues with that, 
Um, it's been more popular to prescribe tablets like Dilaudid or Hydromorphone, which are already pre-covered across the country uh, under, I think, every Pharmacare, provincial Pharmacare plan. How does that, I'm just, I, I'm just kind of hoping that you could walk me a little bit through, um, so if somebody doesn't have a family doctor, for instance, um, I'm assuming, so these safe supply places are like clinics, and so they have um, doctors there that prescribe this or administer the drug mm-hmm. that's covered by um, provincial healthcare. And then what, um, I guess for me, I'm thinking about more of like the continuum of care, right? So is what other programs or services are provided in addition or um, like on a more holistic basis, I guess, is that something that you guys look at or consider or is it provided now? We do like the, um, there's, you know, the more traditional pro- uh, style of like in- injectable opioid uh, treatment programs comes with basically like a, a like a one-stop shop where people can go to the clinic. Uh, they use it use at a clinic, but they also can see a social worker, healthcare worker, um, you know, all the all the services that they they might need to use um, or they might need the support from. Um, but also, it doesn't ha- it doesn't have to be like that for everybody because there are people that would prefer you know prefer that they're not really interested in accessing those healthcare services, some folks. And so for, you know, for them, it might, it just makes more sense to give them a prescription of, you know, something that works for them and um, just letting them use offsite. Okay. And so that is available now. Um, it's, it depends on the, it depends on the jurisdiction because okay. COVID COVID-19 was like a game changer for, I mean, for everything. Uh, and, you know, after, since COVID, started uh in the quarantine measures we've lost so so many people to overdose uh across canada it's never been this bad so as a result of that in bc they released a prescriber guideline um that anybody supposedly could go to a physician and get a prescription uh for hydromorphone tablets but in, in practice it hasn't been like that most people who've gone and tried to get a prescription of not had good experiences. Um, there's about 2,000 people plus in BC right now that have a prescription under the guidelines. But there's like, I mean, we've like, I had so many people have come to us or, you know, asked us what's, you know, what do I have to do? Where should I go? Um, and we usually tell them that there's, you know, specific uh, rapid access addiction clinics if you're in Vancouver, where you're more likely to get a doctor to prescribe, but it's not it's not, it hasn't been guaranteed. So British Columbia took the step of expanding prescribing privileges to nurses as well. Um, but so far nurses can only prescribe, uh, Suboxone under, they can only prescribe Suboxone so far, but hopefully that'll be extended to include, uh, everything like the, the injectable hydromorphone, Dilaudid, injectable heroin. Okay. Um, so here I'm, I'm in, um, Edmonton, Alberta, and, uh, our current provincial government has shut down some safe, um, injection sites. And, um, you know, I I think, like you said, this is all across Canada and I know that's a little bit different, but, um, the overdose deaths have skyrocketed. Now, 
do you think, or in your opinion, is this, I'm sorry, I'm, and I'm not necessarily trying to make you have a political opinion about, um, you know, our government, but um, <laughs> <Too late. laughs> more, <laughs> yeah, but um, it's more in the sense of, do you think that COVID was like the, the catalyst for the deaths or is it a combination of the decision-making by our various levels of government uh, and COVID or is it just timing? Oh, it's a product of policy for sure. Like we've mm-hmm. seen during COVID, a lot of harm reduction services get their hours cut back or, or shut down during COVID. And the advice we give to people at risk of overdose never use alone is polar opposite to COVID, which is basically, you know, mm-hmm. stay home and, you know, stay home and stay isolated from people. So basically people who use drugs are caught in the intersection of that. And they're caught in the intersection of two actually public health, health emergencies across the country, really. So, and because, because of that, um, because of the COVID restrictions, it's not, uh, yeah, I would say it's the policy more than anything else. Um, mm-hmm. uh, emphasizing the physical distancing, um, stuff that puts people at higher risk of overdose. One of the main things, you know, that I really work towards is trying to remove some of the preconceived notions or the biases that I have that are mainly created by our governments that teach us, you know, if you're a drug user, then that automatically means you're poor. It automatically means you're homeless. And so can you give me a couple of avatars of the types of people that would access um, this type of program? The treatment criteria for, for, for these programs is, um, for, for one thing is focused typically on people who use injection drugs in the case of like the IOT programs. Um, so it's, it was considered to be like a, when it was initiated, it was supposed to be like a last resort sort of treatment for people that had failed, that had tried like OST, had tried methadone, uh, suboxone and didn't do well on it. So um, this was considered like a third or a fourth line treatment technically, but um, because of, I mean, because of the severity of the overdose crisis, um, like in British Columbia, uh, most play a lot of places are, you know, generalizing, but in the downtown east side, nobody has any problem obtaining methadone if they want it. But a lot of people don't want to enter a treatment program like that. A lot of people prefer the euphoric effects they get from a, a drug. And so what we've seen is that the, the demand for safe supply in programming has not been met by the government. There's a huge demand. I mean, we've done... We, they did extensive work in trying to increase access to methadone and suboxone and a lot more people can get it. But the work on getting safe supply there is not even close yet. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, I just kind of I picture, you know, I think that there's a lot of societal misconceptions about what and who a drug user looks like and is. Absolutely. Um, and someone that has a substance use disorder. I think that's the right way to describe it. You know, and I think it's similar to when we're talking about, and, and this is not, you know, obviously they can go hand in hand, but just as an example, when we picture houselessness, some people think like, oh, they don't work and they don't do anything, which isn't true, no. <laughs> right? There's, there's plenty no. of people that experience houselessness that 
do work and they work full time and they have families and, um, you know, their kids are going to school. And, and I think that's true as well, Jordan, for um, drug users. Like there's lots of people. Oh, yeah. It is, it's very hard. Like, you know, drug users are as diverse as Canada is. Um, there's, you know, in every sector of society, uh, in every parts of, you know, socioeconomic class, there's, there's people who use drugs. And, you know, however, I, I would say that based on class and race, not everybody pays the same price when they when they use an illicit drug or sell an illicit drug. And that can vary based on race and class. So uh, the people who pay, you know, who have the who see the worst of, of drug policy and drug prohibition tend to be people who are lower class or, you know, working class, lower class people who are, who are poor and also racialized as well in some cases. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say, like, everybody uses drugs, but we don't all pay the same price uh, for using them. Does, does um, addictions affect, like, one group of people more than another group of people? Whatever that intersection may be, I'm not, I'm not sure. It's just curiosity. Well, it's often said that, like, people who've had childhood trauma are strongly like more likely to uh develop like uh uh drug use problems um i i don't it's that's one of those things that's hard to say i think you know a lot of people say it has to do with the experiences earlier in life partly um but it it doesn't it doesn't have to be correlated with that and there are some folks who you know it's just that they that's what they want to use they want to use that drug the way someone can get a beer or coffee and you know not have to worry that it's like unpredictable and that it'll kill them right so it's like you know it's safe supply is something that's controversial but it's also completely taken for granted because anyone who can go into you know into a liquor store and buy buy you know vodka and not have to worry that there's fentanyl in it because it's been it's regulated and distributed by the government um that's all safe supply, really. Um, but we have in, in Canada, we are everywhere, really. We have trouble, you know, bridging that gap to consider the other substances, right, that people are using that are already have been criminalized. And that many people use. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> like, this isn't, <laughs> you know, I could, I could, I could count a handful of friends right now that I know who use cocaine or take psilocybin or MDMA or whatever. And, you know, and, and I don't think for a second that any of them have really, even they, even though they're users of drugs, like they don't think about, I don't know. It's interesting from that perspective, when you think about, does it, is there a point at which it becomes less safe? Like how, how come some people seem to be able to access it more safely than others? Is that, does that have to do with, um, like the addiction side of it, or is it just kind of a crapshoot for everyone? Uh, depends. Like, do you mean just like uh, accessing the, like the illicit supply, or just y- yes, yes? Um, I mean, ultimately, it, it's a crapshoot for everybody. I'd say uh, it, it's unpredictable. It's you know, it's been wide. Fentanyl contamination is widespread, and it's even spread into supplies of stimulants. Uh, which people, a lot of people are not used to. So you see it more in meth and cocaine as well. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say that, you know, people have to take precautions. And I think 
you're not immune to it if you use illicit drugs. Um, that's, you know, one thing I think people need to think of when, you know, they try and, you know, stigmatize people is that this is broader than that than perhaps, let's say, someone using injectable fentanyl or something like that. Um, it can affect people using, you know, stimulants as well. And people have to keep that in mind when they're using, unfortunately, um, that, that the illicit supply is, is dangerous right now. Mm-hmm. Is your is is CAS more focused on the injectable side of drugs, or is it kind of across the board? Uh, we do focus. We focus on like the way we define safe supply and how we originally defined it was like legally legal and regulated. So we do try and push the government more from right now in in many Canadian places. Uh, the the emphasis is on prescribing tablets for injection use. And we know that does, there's already established literature that that does come with harms and it can come with health impacts. So that, yeah, the way we define it is that it's regulated for a certain use. So we want to see people who use injection drugs be included in healthcare and pharmacare. So we want to see them get injectable opioids that we know are safer for their bodies and made for their bodies. Um, just, just to, you know, if, if it's like, it's safe supply for a reason, right? So we, we want to make sure it's actually safe for people. It's not, if, you know, if you end up getting health complications, a different, uh, other health complications other than overdose from using a drug, like lung, lung granul- granuloma, or, uh, in some cases, endocarditis that, you know, that kind of compromises what we're trying to do. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you can you kind of elaborate on so when we talked about it's not really any different for a drug user than somebody, um, you know, we take that for granted in terms of like you go get your coffee or you go get you know, go into the liquor store. Why should these drugs, why should um, again, I'm using air quotes, illicit drugs be something that's regulated or dispensed or um you know, administered through the healthcare system versus something like what we did with cannabis and you open up a store and you can just go buy it. Is it like, is that the long-term goal or should it always be going through the healthcare stream? No, I think the long-term goal ideally is we would have a healthcare stream that ensured everybody, like anybody at risk of overdose to get a prescription or to get something like that. But I think on top of that, we need to build compassion clubs. Um, and, you know, that could be that could be, you know, ba- you know, basically someone goes into uh, uh, a compassion club being like almost like a cannabis shop um, and you can pay for the drugs yourself and use them there or take them home. Um, and that's super important because like we were talking about demographics earlier uh, for people in certain social classes or economic classes. They don't, they're not going to go to uh, an injectable opioid program or they're not going to necessarily ask their doctor for a prescription. Um, so I think that having the, the what's, what's great about the Compassion Club is that uh, that's the first kind of idea that's come out that's not based on the healthcare system. And I think it's like super important. So I think like first I want to, we want to make sure that everybody uh, is included in our pharma care and our health care. Uh, 
And then on top of that, we, we want to, I would love to see compassion clubs everywhere. The other thing is, is that we still do not have a heroin supply in Canada. That's the other, the major thing inhibiting the compassion club, um, any, any of the safe supply ideas right now. Um, and that's been an, a long-term issue. Um, recently, there was a pharma company, a nonprofit pharma company, who started up to address that. And they want to introduce uh, injectable heroin, a drug they call Opiax, uh, to the Canadian marketplace and make it available on prescription here. But um, that's, I don't think they're, I do not think that's where they want to stop. I also think that they do want to figure out a way to dispense it in a compassion club setting. And I think what's good about the, the, this group doing this, doing the work for fair price pharma is they totally understand that the way uh, they understand the compassion club model in a way that a billion dollar pharma company would run the other way. And, and, you know, and just be, you know, sort of intimidated by it and stigmatizing it. And especially right now during the overdose crisis, when you know the provincial governments are actively suing the major pharma companies, it's been very, very hard to find a pharma company who actually wanted to produce heroin. You know, while at the same time they're dealing with these lawsuits related to the overdose crisis. There's a lot to unpack here for sure, especially yeah. <laughs> like I'm sure on your side, you know this this quest for just saving people basically. And, um, and then, you know, on, on the community side on this, there's, you know, some people that get some of it and then other people that have no idea. And then there's that, I don't know, total other group that is completely against it, some of it for a lack of understanding, but then there's also, you know, a small group of people that have lost loved ones to drug use and and even still um, don't necessarily see that this program would be something or this this type of initiative would be useful or helpful. So I'm wondering what you would say to those people. Um, I would say that for one, we if we we can look at the evidence and there's pretty clear, very clear evidence from Europe and Canada that. Uh, for people who have an issue with opioid dependence, that these programs are a lifesaver. Uh, they prevent people from get from dying. They prevent people from experiencing criminalization, and they also, you know, they they nobody needs to necessarily hustle on the streets uh, uh, to support their habit if they have a safe supply. So it's safer for people who you know do not want to be doing that, and it's safer for communities to have some kind of legal uh, drug supply available. Well, uh, Jordan, I think I think that's all, all I have right now. <laughs> it's just a lot. I'm like, okay, I have to go I back. Know, and... <laughs> really, oh, God. It's, it's a topic like it's, I've been talking about it for a few years now. And the, the longer it goes on, the more confusing it gets. And and people just like kind of it's it's really it's really hard to find in like an in for people, I think. Uh, so yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm I'm, I'm glad uh, to be on. That was that was really interesting and great. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate your time. One thing that I think really stands out for me is, and the and the word too, that word compassion. And I think I think um, just accepting that this 
is in existence for some people, you know, and, and we're always, it seems societally, we're always trying to find ways like you have to fit within this box and that's the only way that you can exist and be a human. And to me, this really does increase that level of compassion and, but also um, gives people some autonomy and agency into their, into their existence as a human. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I like the way you put it. Um, it gives people gives people back their independence, uh, gives people back their, their ability to, to, you know, believe in themselves and, and to, and to pursue goals and, and just to live, you know, and just to live life, uh, with less judgment and stigma from society, let alone Mm -hmm. criminalization. Thank you so much again, Jordan, for your time. I, I truly do appreciate the energy that you've put into this and I've learned lots and I can't wait to learn more. I'm going to do some more (laughs) research for myself, but, um, if, people wanted to learn more where can i send them okay so our website safesupply.ca mm-hmm. uh it has a very uh strong resources and research section where we have you know pre- any of the research uh about safe supply and also just resources for people to learn a little more about what it is uh you know info sheets we have a whole variety of stuff up there so yeah safesupply.ca uh is is the best my preferred spot obviously (laughs) yeah awesome (laughs) okay thank you jordan thank you so much stay safe okay thank you for listening to another episode of outside the house we'd like to thank our guests valued sponsors and of course all of our listeners for your support don't miss any of our weekly episodes follow us on social media and subscribe at patreon.com slash outside the house for ad-free and uncut content. Stay safe and be well.